As we come now to Matthew chapter 9, we've seen for weeks on end as Matthew presents us with the authority of Jesus. And the question before us all this morning in this text is how do we, maybe that's as a church, maybe that's as individuals, how do we respond to the authority of Jesus? Do we conduct our daily lives as though he is in charge? Do we fill out our planners knowing that he is in charge and work out our schedules? We've seen, as Matthew has put on display for us, we've seen the authority of Jesus over nature as he, as he heals diseases and calms storms and even corrects congenital effects, birth defects in people. We've seen Jesus' authority over the supernatural as he casts out demons. And last week, maybe the pinnacle of his authority, because only God can do this, we see that he has the authority to forgive sin. It's noteworthy As we saw last week, that as one who has the authority to forgive sin, he has the authority to withhold forgiveness. We should, again, take note, not only in this story, but in in the rest of what we have seen Jesus do, uh, of who gets forgiven. Last week, we saw that it was the paralytic and his friends as they tear open this roof and lower their friend down, who not only did the paralytic receive healing, but they received forgiveness. While the scribes, the spiritual ones of the day, the spiritual elites, if you will, were rejected. Today, in Matthew, we see it's a tax collector and not the Pharisees. Not not those who were devoted to full-time study of God's Word and obedience to it. It's not them that receive forgiveness. It's the tax collector. The worst of the worst. One of the things we see here, and this is really important for understanding this text, is, and not just this, but we see this on repeat throughout the Gospels, is that it's those who believe themselves to be spiritually healthy who always prove themselves to be the most sick. Let that sink in for a minute. It is those who believe themselves to be the most spiritually healthy who always prove themselves to be the most sick. And it's those who believe themselves to be most unworthy who wind up receiving God's forgiveness. It's almost as if Matthew is illustrating for us the Sermon on the Mount, that it's the mourners who rejoice. It's the poor in spirit who gain the kingdom. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It truly is, as we'll see throughout the remainder of the book of Matthew, an upside-down kingdom. But the point that Jesus is making here is that he did not come for those who thought themselves well. He did not come for those who thought themselves healthy. He came for the sick, for the needy, for the poor. And so this begs the question of all of us. Do you believe yourself as you sit here this morning, as I stand in this pulpit, uh, do we believe ourselves to be spiritually healthy or spiritually sick? Do we come to this place desperate, for the forgiveness of God? Do we come here because we think we're we're doing the right thing? 
Do we drive past others who are going other places on our way and think we're well while they're sick because we're going to church? Or do we come because we're desperate for grace, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for the fellowship of the saints, desperate to praise God for all he has done for us. And I'm not asking us for the right answer here. I'm not asking us for the pat answer. Because if, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, and I say, you know, are you spiritually well or are you spiritually sick? We all know the right answer. Oh, no, no, I'm, I need Jesus. I'm desperate for Jesus. I'm asking for what we really believe in our heart of hearts. When, when, what, when things come out of us, without thinking about them? Do we, do we perceive ourselves to be better than others? More obedient than others? Less in need of God's grace than others? How can we tell? How can we tell what, what's really in our hearts? And as Jesus quotes some scripture for us that we'll look later, look at later, I think his answer for us is our level of compassion. I had a conversation recently in my own home with a family member who's walked with the Lord for a long time and who in many ways I believe to be spiritually mature. But somehow or another, the conversation turned to the current uh, climate of the sexual revolution, which is not new. If you think it's new, come see me. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians. We'll see how the exact same things were going on 2,000 years ago. It's not new. But, but the whole thing came up. And the response, the thing that this family member said to me was, this whole thing is just disgusting to me. And what, what, what I thought in that moment was that is not a Christ-like response. Because Jesus, looking upon the masses who were living in their sin, seeking happiness, by the way, in it, seeking something that is fleeting to them, desperate for an identity, desperate for acceptance, desperate for love, desperate for healing all things that Jesus answers, he looked at people living like that, and what we're told over and over again was that he had compassion on them because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And when our response is disgust, where God's response is compassion, we can be certain that we, we have forgotten what we've been saved from. We've forgotten our desperate need of grace, to be sure. A holy God will never tolerate sin. But here, in our text today, is God in the flesh telling us that he came for the sick. And Matthew is penning these within the context of chapters 9 and 10 to tell us that Jesus has left us here to do the same. 
And whether you have no idea what it means to be a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for 80 years, the same question is before us all today. Do you see yourself, myself, as in need of Jesus' forgiveness as much today as we did when we first came to him? Did we start out desperate for forgiveness and marveling that God would forgive a sinner like me to coming to a point where we kind of think, man, God's pretty lucky he's got me on his team. The church should be pleased that I'm here today. He didn't come for those who have it all together. He came for those who don't. And he saves those who know they don't. And it's going to beg a question of us as a church. Is Trinity Walla Walla a place where people are welcomed and wanted when they don't have their lives all together? Or do we expect a a certain decorum in order to be here? I don't know the answer to that. Do we direct our gospel efforts Like, let me ask you, when you think about sharing the gospel with the lost, is there anybody who is like, oh man, I shouldn't share with them. They're not going to want to hear that. Do you think that people who, who have their lives and jobs and works and work and financial portfolios all together, are they the people we want to evangelize? I could keep going, but what I want to do is really get to today's text. And so I want us to see here the response that we see to Jesus' authority. And let's remember um, that, that he's got authority over the natural, over the supernatural, and over sin. And really, what Matthew has presented to us is that he has authority over all things. And so we're going to see the right response. We're going to see a wrong response. We're going to see uh, Jesus' response to the wrong response, and then we're going to see an illustration of that response. Let's start with the right response, verses 9 and 10. Now, Matthew, uh, I think, must have been a pretty humble guy, because as always, we kind of come back to this week after week, Matthew edits some things out of here that, uh, that Luke and Mark do not, and we'll consider some of those. But it says, as Jesus passed on from there, so he was in Capernaum, he healed these people, he taught, he was passing on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, the same Matthew who is writing, sitting at the tax booth. Now, this is a problem because tax collectors were hated by the Jews. The, uh, the tax collection was up for sale. You could purchase tax districts where you were then responsible for taxing the people. It was called a publicani. It's where the term publican comes from, if you know that term. But um, the the tax district, this particular tax district was probably not a very large tax district. But basically what happened is you purchased a tax district from Rome and then you exacted the taxes upon the people and sent them back to Rome. And Rome had their minimum taxes that they required. But if you could exact more tax out of the people, then you could keep that and you could get wealthy. You were responsible for import taxes. You were responsible for personal taxes. You were responsible for every kind of tax there was. And so as people brought goods into this area, you would tax them heavily. Uh, You would tax individuals who lived there, and you could get quite 
rich. And so tax collectors were, uh, they were hated by the Jews. They were, uh, as Matthew being a Jew, he would have been considered by his own people as a sellout to their captors. He was a sellout, he was selling out his own people to make a profit. And they were unacceptable politically because they collaborated with the occupying authorities to levy taxes against their own people. They were unacceptable religiously. The Pharisees, the Jews, the rabbis used Leviticus 2.5, or not 2.5, chapter 20, verse 5. You can look it up later. They, they used that verse uh, as an interpretation to say that tax collectors were not welcome in the temple, and they were socially unacceptable, called Am Haaretz, people of the land. Oh, those earthly tax collectors, those worldly tax collectors, those people of the land, we don't have anything to do with them. And so, because they did things that weren't considered acceptable to the religious elites, they were politically and religiously and socially unacceptable. And so Matthew, he's sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. He got up and he followed him. And Matthew shows us a pretty interesting example of what it means to follow Jesus. First, he got up, he rose. Following Jesus has always required action, it requires doing something. It requires repentance, a change of life. It requires faith. But if you think that you just come to Jesus and, and receive forgiveness and stay in the tax booth, that's not how it works. Jesus calls all who would come to him to follow him. And so wherever it is we are that he finds us, we get up and we follow him. He rose, he took action, and he followed him. And Luke 5.28 tells us that he left everything. Getting up out of that tax booth meant it was no longer his tax booth. He left his source of income. He left his wealth. Like Zacchaeus giving everything that he had stolen back, Matthew gets up and he abandons his former life and he follows Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, again, Mark and Luke tell us whose house this is. It's Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Why tax collectors and sinners? It's the only friends Matthew had. He's politically unacceptable, he's religiously unacceptable, he's socially unacceptable, and so his friend circle in his home is all these people who are, who are just completely rejected by the culture. This term sinners is often used later in Matthew as in other places for, for prostitutes, for thieves, for rebels. These are Matthew's friends. And so he doesn't only rise and follow Jesus, he goes and he gathers all his friends into his home and shares a meal with them and says, I want to introduce you to somebody. And Jesus is now hanging out with all of these tax collectors 
and sinners. Somewhere along the lines, I think we've picked up the idea in the church that evangelism is the end goal of our discipleship. Like, I I believe in Jesus today, and then I go to a class, and then I become a member of the church, and then I go to church for 27 years in Sunday school classes, and I read books, and I watch videos, and then once I've got most of the answers, now it might be time for me to go tell somebody about Jesus. But almost every time, especially in the Gospels, but elsewhere, we see somebody come to faith in Christ, they become an evangelist immediately. They receive their call to live on mission the moment they receive their call to be saved. Not sometime later. And I think what we've done to ourselves, the best analogy I could could figure is, uh, you know, Michael Phelps. I remember reading an article back one day, this is when Michael Phelps was still swimming, about what he ate in a day. I probably weighed 330 pounds at the time. And this guy ate more than I could possibly eat in a day. And he was like skinny as a rail. Long and lean. And the reason was the output from his workouts matched the input. And I think the analogy stands true for us spiritually. Because what I see in my own life, what I see in churches, is the more we say, well, I don't need to spiritually exercise right now. I just need to be fed. I'm going to come on Sundays. I'm going to go to a Sunday school class. I'm going to go to church service where I demand that the Word of God be preached. I'm going to go to a growth group where we study the Word of God, but I serve nowhere and I tell no one about Jesus, and we become spiritual consumers who exercise nowhere, and then we wonder why the church is fat and lazy. I don't wonder. Maybe, maybe what some of us need is less food and more exercise. Wait a minute, Logan. You're telling me I need less of God's word in my life? No. I'm telling you that if you're consuming God's word and doing no good to anybody spiritually, you're not consuming God's word rightly. got up and he got to work and if it seems harsh I don't mean it to be but I'm passionate about this I'm trying to exercise more and eat less like in real food <laughs> Because I I want to be able to do the things I want to do. And I think some of us might need to either up our output or balance our input and output. Because 
What Jesus does when he calls us is he feeds us and puts us to work. He does both. And it looks different in different ways, in different seasons, in different places. But the reality is, what we see in Matthew here, is that following Jesus requires helping others to follow Jesus. And if we're not helping others follow Jesus, then we're not following Jesus. I don't mean that we're not saved. I just mean we're not being like Jesus. Every single one of us in this room should have at minimum two people in our lives. One whom we're trying to introduce to Jesus because they don't know him at all, and one who we're helping to follow Jesus because they're behind us somewhere in their walk. And that's not an insult, by the way. Uh, Scripture never faults anybody for being immature. It does fault some churches for being immature when they should be mature, but that's a whole different issue. Uh, But wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's somebody who's on the path behind you, who's been walking with the Lord for less time who would benefit from somebody come along and saying, let me help you not do the dumb things that I did. You can do your own dumb things. You just can't do mine. We should all have at minimum one person who we're trying to introduce to Jesus for the first time and one person who we're just helping follow Jesus better. And notice how Matthew does it. Because we've been talking about this a lot, and it's required of every single person who, who has come to Jesus. He, he does it with hospitality. He invites all of his friends, these tax collectors and sinners, to come over to his house and have a meal in order to meet Jesus. Whether that hospitality is inviting somebody to coffee or a meal in your own home or, or whatever means it is of hosting a relationship. And I'm going to encourage food, by the way. Even if it's like, hey, I don't have a place where I can cook for people, take them out to eat. Because something amazing happens when we eat. Barriers come down. People kind of get disarmed. Eat with people. Eat with people who don't know Jesus. And eat with people who, who need to follow Jesus better. The right response to following Jesus is to help others follow Jesus. And Matthew does this with his people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And Jesus is right there with them. Matthew chapter 11, 19, we'll get there, tells us, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was regularly... Uh, accused of that. Uh, honestly, I kind of think of it this way. Uh, Jesus hung out with the kind of people who I'd get fired for hanging out with. Okay, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, but, but the reality is because Jesus never, he was, he was a master at this. He, he's called the friend of sinners, and those are the people he hung out with. But notice, he didn't get with Matthew in the tax booth. He called him out of it. Jesus was masterful at the people who he hung out with. He just didn't hang out with them while they were engaged in that sin. I'm going to put a challenge on every single growth group here. If you're a growth group leader, pay attention. If you're not a growth group leader, uh, but you're in a growth group, go talk to your growth group leader about this. I think it would be incredibly profitable if every growth group uh, went through, read, and discussed a book this year by a guy named Sam Chan called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Um, 
it's super helpful. It's super helpful because I think we go, man, how, how am I supposed to go talk to people about Jesus? Well, uh, he really simplifies the process for us into some things where we go, oh, I can do that. That's not that hard. And if you're feeling like you need help engaging people in how to talk to them about Jesus, I would love to see every growth group go through Sam Chan's How to Talk to People About Jesus without being that guy. Matthew's right response. He got up, he took action, he followed Jesus, and he invited others to do the same. That's the right response to the authority of Jesus. The rest, we're going to move a lot faster. What about the wrong response? Well, we see that in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice the tactic. They see Jesus hanging out with people that they don't like Jesus hanging out with, and they don't go to Jesus, they go to his disciples. They talk to somebody else. This is one of those people are saying conversations. They pull the disciples aside and they say to them, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice that what they're bothered by is not that they would hang out with Jesus, but that Jesus would hang out with them. So I was studying this I kind of had this thought, you know, if Jesus came to Walla Walla in person on the same mission as he was on at his first coming, he probably wouldn't come here. He probably wouldn't come spend time with us. I don't think he'd be at Trinity on a Sunday morning, even though he is here right now. He's got eternity to spend with us. Hopefully most of us, especially if we call Trinity home, we're already in the kingdom. This is no insult to us. He loves us. He would go where the prostitutes and the addicts and the drunks and the thieves were. This is who he would go be among. This is who he would call to himself. Do we? This is super convicting to me. It's a hard passage to study and preach this week because I spend the vast majority of my time and my hospitality inside the church. And there's part of me that says as I hear this, I need to spend I need to spend less time with the church and more time with people who I want to be the church. The church it just feels safe to me. It's easy, but I want to be more like Matthew. I want to go to the people who don't know him and say, hey, come hang out with me. Maybe some of you have already seen it, The other, but uh, our friends who we were staying with in Tucson this week, they're like, you guys got to watch Jesus Revolution, and we did. And it gets some things right, it gets some things wrong. Uh, it's got the story pretty much right, uh, but, um, but watch it. It's interesting. It's worth watching. So there's another bit of homework. Watch a movie, have a family night, uh, and talk to your growth group leader. But the wrong response is to to just question Jesus. Why would he hang out with people like that? Why why would he be in that place? The divine response 
This is how Jesus responds to the question because Jesus doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for the disciples to come to him. He's proactive. When he heard it, verse 12, he said, so he hears them ask the disciples the question and he turns with them, turns to them and he gives them a response. And in this response, we really see two responses, an argument from reason and an argument from scripture. Look first at the argument from reason. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Using the image of a doctor, he simply asked the people, where would you find a doctor? Well, hopefully among the sick. Because a doctor who spends no time with sick people probably isn't a very good doctor. You would expect to find a physician among the sick. And what Jesus is asking us to see is that we should, expect, we should expect to see a forgiver among those who need forgiveness. And he sets his people on the same mission. Again, the ones who thought they were well proved that they were the sickest of all. Are we more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? Do we spend our time with all well people or are there sick people in our lives? Are there there people who need forgiveness? And do we look at those who need forgiveness and say, nope, that one's too sick. I got to find somebody else. Because Jesus loves to heal the sickest so that when they get healed, there's no explanation other than Jesus can do that. And if, we're, if I understand 1 Corinthians 1 rightly, every single one of us in this room, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God saved you so that people would look at you and go, there's no way that's on that person. Only Jesus can do that. Are we more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? And that's probably a question for us as a church and as individuals. As representatives of the forgiver, we must be among those who need forgiveness. His second argument is from Scripture. Well, and even some ways from their own uh, writing. He says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. Now, go and learn is an interesting phrase to a rabbi, to a Pharisee. Because if you were a student of a Pharisee and they thought you were ignorant of something that you should know, they would use that as a rebuke. Go and learn. Go and learn something you don't know. And he uses their own rebuke against them. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I think Jesus' selection of Hosea 6.6 is surgical. Because they know Hosea. They know that Hosea's story was that God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And he does, a woman named Gomer. So that when she continued to prostitute herself and he had to drag her out of prostitution over and over, God could then use Hosea to say to the nation of Israel, you're prostituting yourselves out to other gods. I think Jesus' use of Hosea to these Pharisees who were prostituting themselves out to other gods is surgical. But the passage he quotes is a passage that speaks of the fact that that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. All of their worship, all of their imagery, all of their sacrifice was nothing apart from mercy. And mercy is a big word in Hebrew. Apart from that, that mercy is distinctively towards others. 
For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We would call this idea of mercy compassion. What if all our worship, what if all of our work, what if all of our programs, what if all of our sermons, etc., etc., are worthless to God apart from compassion for the lost? I've known some churches who would cancel Sunday morning services to go out and do something in the community. Now, guaranteed when you do that, your attendance is low. People don't show up for that. And I've, I've always been critical of that. Like, I would never cancel a Sunday morning service to go do something else. Worship is too important. And I'm not planning on canceling Sunday morning services, by the way. You shouldn't hear that in what I'm about to say. But what if, what if there's something right about that? What if there's something that says all of this that happens in here is worthless apart from compassion for the lost? Listen to Amos chapter 5. I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That justice, again, idea in Hebrew is a big idea. It's decisively about how you treat others in the community and the world you live in. And God's saying, yeah, go ahead, bring your assemblies, bring your feasts, bring your burnt offerings, bring your grain offerings, bring your fattened animals, bring your songs, bring your harps. I don't care about any of it. You got to live righteously and you got to do justice and then I'll hear it. These Pharisees, they were experts in the law. They'd made rules to be able to follow rules. But they had no compassion for these people who are here sitting with Jesus. No compassion for sinners. No compassion for the lost. And so Jesus calls those who would be critical of him for who he was with Again, he's not supporting their sin. He didn't call Matthew to forgiveness in the tax booth. He called him out of the tax booth. He's calling you and me and every sinner out of their sin. But he had compassion on them because of it. And the Pharisees, they are so concerned with their own righteousness, with their own obedience, with their own rule keeping, with their own forms of worship, with their own sacrifice that they had forgotten to have compassion on the lost. And then we get this illustration of it. And we're going to move really fast here because it's kind of complicated, but I I think we'll get it here. Uh, Then the disciples of John came to him, verse 14, and saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, 
but your disciples don't fast. Now, I have no idea when these disciples came to Jesus. Again, Matthew organizes himself theologically. I'm not sure that it's immediately afterwards, but Matthew is putting this here for us, immediately following these responses to the authority of Jesus for a reason. And so the disciples of John, now John had kind of done away with his disciples, but they, they still keep popping up. They pop up even in Acts. There's kind of this, uh, this group of the, the disciples of John. But John, you know, he all, he's already said, once Jesus comes on the scene, like, here's the one you need to follow. I think that's what John means when he says, he must increase, I must decrease. My job's done, stop following me, go follow that guy. But these guys are still following John the Baptist, and so they come to Jesus, and they ask him this question. And I don't think, I don't think it's a bad-hearted question. I think it's a sincere question. I don't think it's a question like the Pharisees where they're questioning Jesus. They just don't understand. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, the Old Testament only prescribes one fast, and it only prescribes that one fast annually. But at this point, the Jews had had required two fasts a week. And so they're fasting twice a week probably, and the Pharisees are fasting twice a week. But Jesus He's kind of shucked off all of that legalism for his disciples. They're not fasting, and they want to know why. Why are your disciples? uh, Why aren't your disciples fasting like the Pharisees require? Jesus responds by basically saying that he's not here to create a new form of Pharisaism. He's not here to create a new form of legalism. He wants worshipers who worship in sincerity. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. We're not trying to impress God on our own power. We're not creating a new set of rules to try and be good enough. And using the analogy of a wedding, Jesus says, Hey, look, you don't mourn at the wedding, you do that later. This this response addresses the immediate issue of this weekly fast. The bridegroom's here, I'm with them, they're not mourning, so they're not not mourning right now. They're not fasting right now. That's not what I came to do. But then, using the analogy of wine and a cloth, Jesus kind of answers this in a big picture. And and, uh, the idea here is if if you'd washed cloth before, then it has shrunk. And if you put a patch that hasn't been shrunk over a hole in that cloth, the next time you wash it, the patch is going to shrink, the cloth is not, and they're going to tear apart. And then using the analogy of wineskins, you, you when they made wine, they took grape juice, they put it inside of a bag made of skin, of animal skin. The purpose was as the yeast ate the sugars in the wine and let gases off, that skin would stretch and the wineskins would swell. But because skin, this, the animal skins that they would use for this, because they had stretchy properties to them, that wine could expand, it could off-gas, the skin rather could expand, and it wouldn't burst. But you couldn't put new wine into old wineskins because they'd already been stretched. And so if you try and use them again and put new wine into those, they stretch, they burst, they pop, and the wine spills all over themselves, and so, or all over itself, or all over the place. So Jesus says in verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
For the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and, both, uh, and, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both are preserved. And what Jesus is basically saying here is that that ritualism of the old covenant, that old covenant way of worshiping God, which included a lot of things, included worship in the temple, it included sacrifice, it included grain offerings, it included all this stuff that we've been reading about. Jesus says, look, that old, this new wine of what I've come to do in the kingdom, it doesn't fit in the old package. It's interesting to me that the whole package of the old covenant was built around the temple, this amazing place. And the message was, come and see. Three times a year, the Jewish men were required to go to the temple. The queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon and what he's built. There's gold everywhere. It's this amazing thing. And the whole message of the system of religion in Israel, and I'm not using religion in a negative way there, was come and see. Come and see what God has done. He is in this place. Come see it. And in the New Testament, that gets reversed. The temple is torn down by Rome, never to be rebuilt again. Why? God's done with it. And instead of saying, hey, come from the corners of the earth to see what I'm doing in this one place, he says, no, I'm going to send you out and you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem. That's the city they're in. And Judea, that's like the county that Jerusalem is in. And Samaria, that's the next geographical ring out and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus shifts completely the way the kingdom works uh, from the Old Testament, come and see, to the new covenant, go and tell. Which means for us, the aim is not to get unbelievers into the church. The aim is to get believers out of it. We gather, we worship, we recharge, we fellowship, we learn, we grow, we get challenged, and then we go. We go and tell. And those old systems, they don't fit in the new package. There's a new way of living when one comes to Jesus. It requires willingness to get up and get out of the tax booth, to leaving everything behind. It requires telling people about who Jesus and what he has done. It requires being on kingdom mission to be out there amongst those who need forgiveness so we can introduce them to the forgiver, just not supporting them in what they're doing. We don't shove legalism down people's throats like, hey, if, if you just would obey, if we could just pass that law, if you would just live this way, everything would be better. No, we, we follow Jesus out of sincerity of heart. We're really good at this, by the way. We're really good at having the attitude both inside and outside of the church that, man, the world would be better off, the church would be better off if those young people, if those old people, if they would just act more like me. But the right answer is, man, the world would be better off 
those old people, those young people, those who do know Jesus, those who don't, if they'd act more like Jesus. There's a new way to live, a kingdom way, a forgiven way, and a way that offers forgiveness to those who need it. How do we respond to the authority of Jesus? By getting up and following him and inviting others to do the same. What do we do if we've lost that joy? Well, there's a a quote I came across years ago from, uh, from Charles Spurgeon. And he said, fly back. Fly back with me to the day or the hour. And if you cannot recall the day nor the hour, light upon the season where you became a child of God by the willful surrender of your soul. Don't leave the timing, the events, the circumstances, the feelings of when God made you his child. Don't let those go forgotten. Visit that often. Fly back to the day and the hour. And if you don't recall the day or the hour, light upon the season whereby God made you his child by the willful surrender of your soul. Live there. Let's never forget. Heavenly Father, we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget our desperate need of you. We are prone to forget all that you have saved us out of and from. Would you help us to remember that season? Would you help us to remember who we were in our BC days? Would you help us to be quick to remind ourselves of of what we were saved from? Not so that we might be self-deprecating. May we also know your love and your affection for us. We want and need to be desperate for your forgiveness, desperate for your grace. Help us to not only remember what you have saved us from and what you have called us into, but maybe we be quick to tell others of who you are and what you have done. May we, may we follow you by inviting others to follow you. May our worship and our songs and our sacrifice of time or money or service or whatever it is, may our offering. May they all lead us to compassion. May we see those around us not as a world to hide from or to protect ourselves and our children from, but we need wisdom in raising our children in the world that we live in for sure. But give us a deep and abiding compassion, your compassion for the lost. May we see the world around us like you see them. And as you once saw us, for your glory, for our good, for the salvation of the lost, we ask in Jesus' name.